The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert, and I have a great guest for you today. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention to my listening audience, one of the best uh, museum conferences uh, that I've ever attended um, is Museum Next. And often, it has, for many years, it has been in, um, in Europe. Uh, I believe it was in Australia and all sorts of wonderful places. But this coming month, November uh, 14th and 15th, it is going to be in New York City. And uh, I am, I'm going to be there. And I, I know that there are slots still open. So I encourage you all to Google Museum Next, get on their website and uh, register because it's going to be a great meeting. And the reason I am telling you this is that my guest today is someone I've wanted to have on the show for about a year and our schedules just haven't worked but Tony Butler is also going to be speaking at Museum Next uh, in November and he was gracious enough to uh, schedule some time with with us today so Tony uh, welcome to the show hi hello thank you thank you for having me on Carol yeah, so uh, Tony and I have had uh, a, a few technical gremlins, so if we both sound a little breathless, uh, we will calm down in just a few moments, but we are so happy to be on the phone together actually speaking. Uh, those of you, Tony is uh, a name well known to uh, all of you in the UK. He is the executive director of the Derby uh, Museums Trust. He has been held that position since 2014. I was very fortunate enough to hear Tony last year at the ICOM conference in Washington, D.C., and I was so taken with his his approach and philosophy and his commitment to museums as uh, socially relevant uh, organizations and their role in social justice and community building that I have been thrilled uh, to follow his uh, progression and uh, listen and watch as he has really transformed an organization and, dare I say, the community in which he lives. So, Tony, uh, I'm going to stop speaking now. I hope you've had a chance to catch your breath. I have, yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And as I do with all of my guests, if you would please describe your career path and perhaps share one or two experiences that have shaped the way you think about the role of museums in society. Okay, so um, I've been working in museums for 19, about 19 years. So I, my, my first job in, in 1998, and um, I took my first director's role um, in 2004 when I became a director of the Museum of East Anglian Life. Um, I suppose my, my background is in social history. Um, I'm a, I have a degree in social history and then a, a, a master's degree in museum studies. Um, but I think what shaped me more regarding my own practice in museums is, is probably my upbringing. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a fairly kind of working class um, environment. You know, my, I was the first person in my family to ever go to university. And when we were kids, my parents never took me to museums or art galleries because I think they felt 
uncomfortable. They think, I think they felt they, they weren't for them. Um, and ever since then, I think I've been really, um, you know, driven to make sure that museums are recognized as places for everybody. Um, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what your ability is. And they should be places where, you know, the whole community can come together and enjoy and learn about their cultural heritage. So I think it was, it was, it was that desire um, that, that, that shaped the way I look at, at, at museums. The other great thing I think that influenced me was libraries. So when I was, a, again, when I was a child, I, I spent far longer in libraries than I did in museums because in, in, the, in, the, in the 80s, you know, I would be taken to my local library and, uh, you know, a couple of times a week by my mum and she'd, I'd, I'd sit down in the kids' reference section and read all the history books while she was off choosing her books. But libraries were very kind of egalitarian, you know, safe spaces and a space that everyone felt that they, you know, they had a right to be in. So I think I, uh, th- that's the sort of thing that shaped me in, in, in the way I view museums. And, you know, ever since then, I've, I've, I absolutely believe that they should be open, democratic spaces that should be somewhere for everybody to come together and feel it's their place to learn. You know, that's, uh, you are the, I think, the first guest I've had on on the show that mentioned libraries okay. as, you know, one of those those pivotal moments. And it just reminds me so much of the, uh, of the museum, um, uh, philosopher and uh, John Cotton Dana, who of course mm. drew so many parallels between the importance of libraries uh, and and museums as places to use three dimensional objects, whether they're objects or books, to uh, to connect with with the community, and that the that the advantage that libraries have always had is that they are in the community. Uh, you know, they're usually within walking distance, and and I think that that can sometimes make a huge difference in removing barriers. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to look at the the patterns between library and museum use, especially over here in the UK and. Um, and you know, the statistics show that library use is going down and museum usage is going up. Now, whether I'm, I'm not sure of the numbers in terms of you know, the, the, the comparable you know, net numbers of users, but in terms of trends, that's happening. And obviously, a lot of that is to do with the, the you know, books are much cheaper than they used to be. They're more readily available. Um, they're more affordable. And people are accessing information far more online than they, than, than they ever used to. Ter- uh, but me, I think museums have vastly, uh, you know, have changed hugely in the last 20 years. And the way that people, especially in the UK, view museums is that they expect community engagement. They expect people to feel welcome when they come over the threshold. And a lot of that has been, you know, I'm sure there's been lots of learning from the way that libraries have behaved. But, um, you know, in general, local museums have changed, you know, vastly in the last 20 years in this country. And how so? Yeah. How have they? Well, I, like I said, I think they've, they've become mm-hmm. much more community-focused. They have... We've had years of fairly sustained investment in, um, since, since around about 2000, both in capital projects and in the buildings, but also in, around programming. And programming that's very geared towards... Um, uh, supporting marginalised audiences, increasing, you know, around audience development, you know, um, looking at where where the areas of low participation is within a community and working proactively to encourage people who traditionally wouldn't have seen museums as for them. So I think that there's been there has been a lot of investment, and there's also been a big mindset change in in museum professionals in. in, in in the UK over the last 20 years. So every museum, you know, most museums will have, you know, will be working with focus groups. They'll be, they'll be involved in participatory practice. They'll have, um, you know, they'll have, you know, focus groups or, you know, or, or, or user groups that are attached to their organisation. And there's been a lot of work over the last, especially in the last four or five years, where museums have really looked to work out how they can embed their practice within the community. So the Paul Hamlin Foundation has been running a program 
since 2011 called Our Museum. And that's geared towards ensuring that participation is at the heart of the museum, but not just in terms of programming, but also in terms of, you know, op- opening, the up, opening them up to the community for decision-making and for, um, a, you know, a whole range of what we'd probably call democratic um, a- activities. Do you think that that, uh, that opening up uh, parallels some of the economic challenges that have uh, beset uh, some of the UK museums over the last 20 years, or are those just uh, uh, serendipitous? Well, I, I mean, I, I, see, since 2000, more money has gone into museums in the UK. So between around 2000 and 2010, 2012, more and more investment went, in, went into improving services in museums. And that's really kind of laid a great foundation for organizational change in museums. And, and obviously what we've seen since around about 2012, after the Olympics happened here, is, is, is a... Is a is a you know is a reduction in public funding and support to museums. Um, you know museums are working in a much leaner way. There you know there is less money around, but the organisational change that and the and the practice change that happened in the first decade of the 21st century is you know the legacy of that is still there. And I think what's happening now is that more and more museums are are, are, are taking participation even further and working within. A, a, so working within a more constrained budget means that they're having it's necessarily making them think about how they connect more with their communities and, and work in a more participatory way, which is exactly what we've been doing here in Derby, which I'll probably talk a bit, uh, about a bit later. So I think it's a mixture of, of initial investment, um, a, a kind of generational shift in terms of museum practice, and then necessity being the mother of invention in the recent past in using what we've learned and using it in more constrained circumstances and working more creatively. That's, uh, that I think is, is very interesting. I think that there are some parallels here in the, in the U.S. as well, but I think in, in, uh, in many aspects in terms of uh, museums really focusing on their communities, I dare say that, that we, have a little, we have a longer uh, way to go uh, until that this is really institution-wide, although there are a number of institutions, organizations that are doing uh, similar work to yours and have really sort of made that that sea change, that shift in uh, realizing, as uh, as Stephen Wall used to say, that 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 museums are really about some somebody, not uh, or they're for somebody, not about something. And yeah. uh, I think that once once uh, once individuals within the museum world start making that that uh, vocabulary shift, that a lot of other things uh, fall into place. We are before I I uh, I do want to get to the work that you've been doing at uh, at Derby because I think it is it's uh, it's so emblematic of of philosophically what we've just been talking about in the last uh, few minutes. I am going to take our first break uh, so that I don't break your train of thought. And when we come back, more with uh, Tony Butler. And remember uh, to reach out to me as many of you do on a weekly basis at carol.bossard@verizon.net or uh, uh, on Twitter, at my handle is at MuseWrite. I really enjoy hearing what you are all doing and uh, listening to your suggestions on what topics we need to be talking about on the show. And you always have marvelous guests that you send my way, and I am very, very grateful. So we will be back in a moment. There's much more to talk about. Uh, so stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. 
CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Tony Butler, who is the executive director of the Derby Museum Trust. And uh, Tony and I have been been talking in this first segment about uh, museums, particularly in the UK, really taking a much more proactive role in their communities uh, and becoming uh, focused more on issues of community well-being and and participation. And, Tony, I do want you to share with us some of how you have applied this approach and philosophy to uh, the Derby Museums, particularly the the fabulous and interesting work you're doing at the Silk Mill. But before you do, since uh, we do have an international listening audience, could you just provide us with a little context about Derby, its historical significance, and life there today? Okay, so so Derby is right in the middle of England. So if you put a pin in the middle of the country, you, you, you'd find it. Um, it's a city of about 270,000 people in what we call the Midlands. So it's about half an hour from Birmingham, which is our... You know the second city, and about an hour from Manchester. So it's in the it's, it's in the industrial heartlands of the of, of England. Um, it's uh, it's originally founded by the Vikings um, over a thousand years ago, but it really rose to prominence um, in the 18th century as a manufacturing centre. So one of our sites, Derby Silk, Silk Mill, which you've already mentioned, is the is a UNESCO World, World Heritage Site, and it's the site of the world's first factory. Um, founded in 1720. Um, and the, the silk mill, as it suggests, made silk for over 100 years and then made a variety of other things. But it was where the, the, it, it's situated within the Derwent Valley, um, which goes north of Derby, um, which, is, um, which has around eight to nine other mills that were all built around about the same time and are part of the, of the World Heritage Site. So making and manufacturing is absolutely within the, the, you know, the soul of, of the city. Um, and then on towards the 19th and 20th century, we, the, there was a big um, center for the manufacturing material for, for the railways, um, locomotive works, and Rolls-Royce, which is one of the few world-class British manufacturers that's still around, has, the, has, a, has a very significant base in, in the city. It employs about 14,000 people, and it makes all the jet engines um, that... To the, 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 the UK exports. So and there's, there's two companies in the world that make jet engines: a GE in, a, GE in America and Rolls Royce in the UK. So the chances are, next time you leave or go on an internal flight um, around the states, you, 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 you know you'll be um, uh, powered by an engine uh, made from Derby. Very good. So, um, so the silk mill, uh, obviously part of that earliest uh, manufacturing. Um, what was what? What did you find when you took over? You know, this as well as some other other museums in the in the sure. trust when you arrived in you know two thousand and fourteen. 
So I came in 2014, and Dar- so Darwin Museum Trust runs three museums. We have a, a beautiful um, 18th century townhouse, which is a social history museum, um, the city's main museum and art gallery, um, which has a fantastic collection of work by Joseph Wright of Derby, um, the 18th century um, painter of the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. Um, you may not recognize the name, but I expect you'll recognize lots of his, his work. Um, so he, he, we have a big collection there and also of natural history, um, archaeology and, um, and, and other antiquities. And then Derby Silk Mill, which is, as I said, the site of the world's first factory. So the organization I kind of, I, um, I, I, I came across was one that was already undergoing transformation. And um, that had been led by our very inspirational um, Silk Mill director, Hannah Fox, who is the, you know, he's, the, he's really the brains behind the development of, of, of the Silk Mill program. But I found an organization in, in, you know, in transition, that half of which was a fairly traditional museums um, organization, very, um, you know, and it was very good, but it was absolutely concentrating on research of collections and collections care and mounting exhibitions. And then another part of the organization, which was led by Hannah, which was taking a very open and participatory approach, wanted to, to put co-production at the heart of our activities. So the idea was that we make, we, we make museums with our community, not for our community. And I think there's, there's some parallels there with the work that Nina Simon's do, you know, doing in Santa Cruz, I mean, California, and a whole range of, and, you know, and a number, of, a number of other museums in the States. So, as I said, I found an organization that was beginning to change. And my role was to keep that process of, keep, you know, keep the momentum of change happening and then bring my own interest around well-being and environmental sustainability and bring that more to the fore in, in our activities. And this was building on work that I'd been doing in a, in a previous role at the Museum of East Anglian Life, which was a, a big open-air museum in a rural part of England. And whilst I was there, I founded a program called the Happy Museum Project. And Happy Museum looked to kind of develop a holistic approach to well-being and environmental sustainability, um, you know, saying that the, these are two sides of the same coin. And again, so that, that thinking was very much something that we wanted to put into practice at the, at the Silk Mill. So the Silk Mill program is a... We'll completely redevelop this museum, um, but the innovation that we're showing is that we are, build, as I said, we're building the museum with our community. Um, it will be called a museum of making, and it'll be made by um, local people, um, not just in terms of shaping the stories that we tell or the types of objects that we show, but at the moment, people can come in and physically make cases. We have a fully fitted workshop with. CNC machines, 3D printers, um, routers, and compu- uh, you know other computer-generated equipment, where we've worked with makers, tinkers, hackers, to make museum fixtures and fittings. So, th- so th- our ambition is that the in- you know the entirety, that lots of things that the public will see, will be physically made by our visitors. You know that is uh, I I remember you. Uh, Talking a little bit about that when uh, when I when I heard you in Washington, but to me that that takes two things to another level. One, the idea of a maker space. Yeah. Uh, in it's a what do I want to say? It's a focused. There's it's a maker space with a purpose. Uh, I I often find maker spaces either overwhelming. You know, it's 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 like it put me into a yarn shop and I don't know what to do because there are too many. You know, I I I'm a knitter and I just want to buy it all and so I I I have too many choices and that's often how I feel in a maker space and I've watched other. Uh, uh, visitors come into makerspaces and and say, well, how you know what do I do with all this cool yeah. equipment? And you've sort of overcome that by giving everyone a sense of unselfish purpose. Is that yeah. a fair characterization? I think so. And what <clears throat> we do that, but also what underpins the work is our historic collections. So it's a makerspace 
in the confine, you know, in the environment of a 300-year-old factory and UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a, it's an organisation that has one of the finest collections of art by the artist of the Enlightenment and the um, and the and the Industrial Revolution. So all the other cult, the the cultural heritage elements of our collection and our buildings help us frame that. Uh, the, the concept of the make of, of making a museum. So you could do all this work in a, you know in an industrial estate or a, an industrial unit, but what gives it a, you know, what, what 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 places it? What gives it a frame is our historic collections and the uh, uh, and the historic nature of the building. So we've been talking to you know a number of organisations in the states, uh, you know about how you can incorporate making into into the museum experience and they're all re- insanely jealous <laughs> of the raw <laughs> materials that we've got you know we so we can see this is the world's first factory this is the place where the where the industrial revolution and the you know and the factory system was born and we're bringing manufacturing back to a building you know 300 years after it was built <laughs> You know, that raises a, a question uh, for me as well. Um, uh, you might have heard we're in an election cycle here in the yeah. United States. Yeah. Um, and uh, without getting into the politics, one of the the, uh, the issues it raises in every election but but is the economy. And hmm. so there have been many interesting articles uh, being written by a variety of people about, well, you know, are we – in a post-manufacturing economy, yeah. uh, you know things. Uh, we have technologies that are more sophisticated. We now have ro- robots and robotics. That we are really a, a, a culture, not just in the U.S., but in uh, that that is sort of this post-manufacturing culture, and we don't make things anymore. We do other things, and so I'm just wondering. Uh, with the experiences that, that the community is involved with in Derby, how are they connecting mm. the manufacturing past to their present? Well, because I, th- I think, I mean, that's a re- I, mean I, I could talk forever about post-industrial, post, even post-capitalist economies, but we're, uh, we are, things are still being made in the city. And there are engineers that are, I mean, so Rolls-Royce employs 12,000 people in, in, you know, in, in, in Derby and they're still making jet engines and bits for nuclear submarines. But in terms of the, you know, in, in, the, in the long term, you're absolutely right. We, could, we are in, in a kind of, so what an economist would call a kind of, you know, the, 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 chain, the cycle of change between, you know, a, a, one economic cycle and, 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 and another, we are entering we, you know, a post-manufacturing era. We're not there yet, but we will be in, you know, you know, ten, twenty years time. And automation is is one of the, you know, along with climate change, I think, are the two key um, disruptions that are going to hit our society over the next twenty years. And one that I don't think either you know, museums or, or any other kind of bits of public life are quite, quite prepared for. So I think that so the kind of broader general manufacturing um, economy is going, to, is going to change. What there still is, though, is this individual desire to make things. And the pleasure that making brings is palpable. And, the, and what a museum can do is provide an open space for making to happen, but also the, the, other, you know, the, the other offshoots of making, which might be making new friends or learning something new or looking at the world differently. And that's what a museum space can, can, can incubate in a way that, you know, tinkering with stuff in a shed, you know, pro- pro- probably can't. What's also, I think, interesting, and, you know, this is, probably going off the point a little bit, but this is around automation. So in the future, there will not be the manufacturing jobs that people have had in the past. And there may, people, and, and there may not even be the work that people had in the past. So that brings the question as to, you know, what, what are people going to do? <laughs> um, and I think we're going to enter a period where a, a kind of non-market economy will exist. Um, not, we're not there yet, but we're, I think we're moving towards that, where the exchange of time 
and the exchange of non-market goods like care and teaching when it's not in a kind of formal environment um, are, are kind of exchanged in a way that they're not at the moment. So I kind of like to use an example of um, the work we do with volunteers in our museums. So we have a we we run a, a co-production program, and we have you know groups of volunteers working in the museum and supporting our, what we do. And we we have worked under a kind of give-get basis where people give some time to us to use in their workshop, in our workshop where they can make things, and then they give back to us. So we went through a period of where one guy would come in, use our workshop to make skateboards, which he'd then sell privately um, for, you know, two, three hundred pounds a time. And in return, he would teach coding classes to high school kids that are, you know, out of school time. So there was a kind of give-get relationship there. So I think over time, we're going to see much more of that happen within some of our institutions. Um, we're not, as I said, we're not there yet, but I think, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years' time, that may well be the norm. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a left wing economist called Paul Mason, a UK economist called Paul Mason, who's just written a book called Post Capitalism, which, which outlines some of the, those issues. And I think it's, again, it's absolutely um, right that an organization that has, you know, that is telling the a 300-year-old story of capitalism can also look to the future of a, of, a, of a society that's ordered in a very different way. Well, you know, I, I am glad you brought that up, and I know we're getting off this, the topic, but yes. heck, it's my show. Heck, it's my show. I get to do this all the time with wonderful, <laughs> wonderful guests, but I am so glad that you brought up that book, which I've not yet... Uh, it's, it's here on the ever-growing pile, I will say that. Right. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, and and if I listen to you speak long enough, I won't have to read it. But <clears throat> what I but what I think is really interesting is that museums, uh, and I say this in the most loving way, seem to always be about ten years behind on you know sort of the 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 latest trend. You know, we're mm. we're sort of always on the lagging edge of change, and perhaps that's because many of us who who go into this profession do it because we want to preserve things and uh, you know it's it's in our it's in our nature but i think one of the challenges that that us museums still face is that they try to run themselves as a business as opposed to saying that you know a business is a wonderful uh uh, businesses are very solid. You know, you need to do things professionally, yeah. practically, and you don't want want to lose money. But we're not that kind of commerce. Where your your uh, uh, example just a moment ago about the gentleman who was using your material, your your space to do something for himself, but then he was giving back to his community through mm. you is a different kind of transaction than yeah. we often create of say memberships programs, which is Absolutely. I'll give you something. And, and, and I think that that's really been one of the other uh, barriers for a lot of us to think about, as you say, museums in sort of this post-capitalistic uh, way uh, that you seem to have really picked up on. Yeah. And uh, we're still, you know, flirting around the edges here because I don't think, I mean, you know, no amount of social capital is going to pay my electricity bills <laughs> and, right. and, and it won't pay for me to bring in exhibitions. So, so obviously we're still operating in a traditional sense, but over time that, you know, we, there will be, you know, museums are going to be much more fluid um, less transactionally based organisations. So I mean, I've talk, talk, and, you know, I think f museums of the future are going to be based on relationships, not on transactions. And but we're not at that point yet. And so, like I said, I think we're in this kind of transition period before that that will happen. I mean, one of the things that was really clear about in a previous role was when I, when I was running the Museum of East Anglian Life was to to talk about the organisation not as a social enterprise so that we would still act in a business-like and entrepreneurial way, you know, so we st if we did work for others, we would be, you know, be paid for it. But all, but the mission of the act of the organization had to link to public and social good. And so that was 
and I think people felt comfortable when, in being encouraged to be more entrepreneurial to make sure that what we did was absolutely rooted in doing good, doing, having a positive impact on the community and a, and a positive impact on um, individuals that want to come and learn and find out more about local heritage. So I, I, I always re- refer to my organisations as social enterprises rather than businesses. I think that's a, <clears throat> that is a very important distinction. And as you know, I love vocabulary on this show. So I'm going to <laughs> add that one uh, to my list of new vocabulary that push us in new directions. And before we go on, I'm going to take a second break. But uh, there's a lot more for Tony and I to discuss. So please stay tuned. And remember, if you like what you hear now, and why wouldn't you? Please think about coming to Museum Next in November, where you can meet Tony in person and continue on with some of these conversations. See, I've just already filled up your entire uh, dance card for two days, Tony. So we will be right back. Stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. <coughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert.com at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I am talking with Tony Butler today, who is the executive director of the Derby Museum's Trust in uh, the UK. And uh, right before break, we were talking a little bit about uh, how museums really can reposition themselves uh, in subtle and not so subtle ways if they simply take as their metric of success doing good now we understand mm. that that may doing good may not translate into uh, getting money to keep the lights on but I'm still enough of an idealist to believe that uh, organizations that show their worth to the community in that way can also show their worth uh, to other funders uh, to to that translates into keeping the lights on uh, Tony during break we were having some really interesting conversation, beginning conversation about this issue of participatory uh, mm. and what that means. I mean, you've t- you yeah. invoked Nina Simon's work uh, and some of the experiments that she's doing uh, at her museum. And of course, she's written a couple of books on the subject and is, is really very interesting. But, uh, you know, sometimes I think that that term participatory isn't as clear. You know, it's probably like a lot of whooshy words in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was just um, 
I was wondering if, by example, you might start by sharing some of the work that you've done at the Darby Silk Mill in preparation for its new exhibition and, and how you've involved the community, not just in building cases, but in really developing the stories and the, and the themes and, and the narrative uh, that will be in the museum. Okay, so we're, we are, at, I'll, I'll give you two examples because we're at an early stage of development in the Silk Mill and in the Museum and Art Gallery, we've developed an exhibition around natural history that has been more participatory, but I'll start with the Silk Mill. So underpinning all our work here is a human descented design approach. So, and again, that's, that's quite, I mean, that, that's influenced a lot by um, private sector design firms. And again, again, the thinking is probably began in, you know, in the States. But this puts the, kind of the user at the heart of the, the programming and it tests assumptions and prototypes and it involves the user at every step of the way um, in, 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 in the making of, of activities. So we use things like um, tools like uh, empathy mapping, which encourages you to kind of put yourself in, in the minds of a user, thinking about how they'd feel, how they'd, you know, how they'd, you know, the things they'd be hearing, the things they'd be smelling, the things they'd be saying. So really trying to put yourself in the minds of somebody who might be um, using or, or, or involved with, with a piece of work you're doing. So an example of this has been um, a project we've been doing that's helping our design, our exhibition designers think about how they're going to lay out displays, and it's called The Art of Artifacts. And so we've invited the public to take part in a kind of experiment where we have a big rack of, um, uh, of, of objects in the back of the museum, and then we basically ask the public to pick them up and, put, and display them. And so we're looking at the way in which the public decide to order objects, um, how the, the sorts of stories that come out from those objects, and, if, and, it, and everybody will do things in a different way. And our designers have been getting a you know, good body of evidence here of, of, uh, to find out what motivates people to interact with objects. And some people order them through their, their use of these objects, some people will order them through the materials, some through color, and some through a purely individual sort of emotional response to them. So that's helped us think about how we, with our designers, will um, display um, these, these, these objects in the future. Another small example is we have a, a, um, a, a thing called the hub within our museum, which is right at the entrance to the museum. And every day when we're open, a curator is working on the hub, preparing objects. And we encourage the people to come in and to work with our, you know, to, to talk to our curators, to work with them, and then have a go at um, preparing them or cleaning them or doing some basic conservation work on, on them. So it gives the, the visitor a really kind of, you know, visceral experience with, with, with an object. And from that, often we're teasing out stories of people um, who were familiar with this object or for whom it sparked a, a range of memories. So they're examples of what we're doing at the Silt Mill. Um, last year, we crea created a brand new natural history display um, um, we called Notice Nature, Feel Joy. And this was gauging a kind of real emotional response to our natural history collection of, of basically taxidermy. So the... Um, we work with a whole range of um, specialists, um, hackers, tinkerers, um, people, academics from the university, students, as well as um, ordinary members of the public. And we invited them into prototype designs. We had project labs in each of our other spaces that we were going to, going to redisplay, and people were able to come in and, and voice their opinions leave notes using basic things like post-its or huge sheets of paper. We left some craft materials in a, in a corner. So one thing the public, members of the public were saying to us was what we really want is to be able to see all the way around some of these natural history specimens. And in the past, you know, you'd put natural history stuff in a case and it'll be against the wall, but they wanted a 360-degree view of them. So a group of adults came in and they, they, they rigged up a, what, what they called a forest of birds with some toilet rolls and some bits of brown paper. And they made a kind of a trees that they, that, that they suggested we could then turn into cases. 
So we took the ideas that these members of the public had, had, had done and we manufactured them in acrylic um, in our workshop. But we would never have come up with that design solution had not the public or these, these groups of people suggested a way of doing it. So for us, we were, we're learning all the time from our visitors we're building mutual relationships with our community through community groups and individuals. And I think, and, and, and for me, the future of museum is going to be, you know, the best museums of the future are the ones that are going to have a whole range of mutual relationships with their, with their public. So that they're, they're, they're not, so they don't see the public as, as customers. They see them as citizens and participants. I, I, yes, I could, I could not, say it better uh, I, I think we do need to you know, another you know the other list of wishy wimpy words are you know what do we call the people who uh, come come to the museum you know, and, and I think that that also always reveals a lot about how we uh, uh, how we think about that relationship whether we call them customers sometimes or guests or visitors or uh, participants or even colleagues yeah, um, maybe yeah. maybe may may much better I w- was and what what strikes me with all of the examples that you've uh, you've provided is that it truly is the essence of co-creation yeah, it absolutely. is not simply that you uh, put the put your colleagues in in a room and say here figure something out and maybe we'll you know look over your shoulder or we'll videotape you uh, you know as if as if you are uh, test subjects but uh, you know you're it really is the essence of what I think the exploratorium was based on yeah. which is there you know here's the idea here's the phenomenon that we are thinking that that we might want to display uh, we have some ideas you have some ideas let's let's make something together yeah uh, and and I think that that if we can think about co-creation and participate participatory uh, experiences in that way it gets us away from this you know and of course it's no secret in, the, in America we love dichotomies you know you're it's, <laughs> it's either yeah. you know it's either red or green it, you know it can never never be anything in between and um, you know so it's Participatory uh, either means that it's curator-led or it's curator-abandoned. And by curator, you know, it's sort of, you know, yeah. it's the expert in the field. And I, and I think that's where some of the challenges have come in other discussions that I've been, been part of, is that, you know, even, even the community colleagues don't necessarily want to be abandoned. They would like you know, some, some uh, uh, experience and, and some insights. I mean, after all, I've had, I've had a couple of uh, people that I've interviewed uh, in museums saying well that's why we came if we knew everything we wouldn't need you yeah I, 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 absolutely I mean I, I think museums can do more than one thing at a time <laughs> and also they you know and, and co, co-production co-creation happens in 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 you know in a range of different ways and you could we can do a kind of hard co-production where absolutely everything is thrown open or we can do a lit or we can do it you know, to a, to a lesser extent. And it all depends on the nature of the project and the nature of involvement. Um, th- one of the things that I think that's often, that, that, that people are worried, that, you know, prevents people from doing this is this, the notion of scholarship and the notion of, you know, of the, the authoritative museum. Mm-hmm. And, and what we've found is that within, we are a local museum, we are in a city, and we're not going to have all the answers but we have a university here. We actually, we have about six universities within a three-quarters of an hour drive time from the, the city. So there's a whole range of other, um, you know, institutions that have knowledge that we can draw upon, as well as the knowledge of people. And, you know, we've got collections of industry in, in the museum, and these objects would have been used by local people when they were at work. And, of course, they're going to know more about them than someone who, you know, I don't know, has a history degree, went through university. So it, 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 sort of, it, it seems extraordinary that we shouldn't be working with the citizens of our, of our community to find out more about life here and, and more about the cultural heritage. Do you find uh, that 
that most of your um, you know the people that come through the doors are they local? Yeah, so I mean, in, in t- we have a good so we we have a good local profile. Um, probably more people are local than 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 from outside the area, but not 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 for very much. And we do get a lot of people coming to see the, the work by Joseph Wright of Derby. What we uh, uh, we we want more local people to come. We want we are we're free, like many civic museums in the UK. We don't charge admission. Um, traditionally, we've been funded through the but by the by the public sector through our local council or through the arts council so there's always been this strong kind of public service element of what what we do and um that's reflected in 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 driving a local audience but at the same time you know we've got collections here of international significance and so we you know we we, we I, I feel slightly uh irked when I'm accused of running a local museum. Well, actually, yeah, it's a museum that has collections that are known all over the world. It's one of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So we should have, you know, a, a much greater worldview <laughs> than, yes. than, than sometimes we've given credit for. So uh, so we have just one minute left. So this oh. is the lightning round part of okay. the show, Tony. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, you said, I, if I were interested in working in a museum again, I think I'd want to come work for you. Good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so maybe in my next career. But I'm wondering, um, what's your greatest challenge as an executive director? 30 seconds or less. Okay, finance. Um, we're in a big period of transition in the UK. Um, public funding is is declining rapidly. We have to try and generate income from a whole range of other sources, from commercial um, uh, trust foundations, individual givers and donors. The challenge is to make sure we do that without losing our strong sense of social purpose and our strong mission. That's yes. the challenge. That and uh, but I I. I, from listening to you today and the little I, I've gotten acquainted with you, I believe that you are uh, well positioned to uh, get through that challenge in a, in a positive uh, and creative way that can lead, uh, lead the path for many of us. Uh, right. Tony, thank you so much for being on the show today. It has thank been you. just uh, so much fun. And uh, even with all of our uh, behind the scenes technical difficulties <laughs> that you have handled so very well, I truly appreciate thank it. Great. And do come to Museum Next in New York City on the 14th and 15th of November. Absolutely. I'm going to be there. Tony's going to be there. And the rest of you should be, too, because that's where all the cool kids on the East Coast are going to be that weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Jim Richardson made made sure that that I said that. So, again, thank you very much. We will be back next week with another uh, episode of Museum Life. Until then, remember, you can download all of the shows uh, as podcasts. They're available to you anytime. And, again, thank you for watching and thank you for your continued support and encouragement. Encouragement. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.